Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to the Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. Bruce, we got to talk Tennessee again. We can't get away from them. Uh, they're just dominating the news right now. But I want to make sure people realize that later in the episode, we're going to get into looking back at the the lows and highs, the very few highs there were of Larry Scott's tenure at the Pac-12. We're going to talk about Steve Sarkeesian's staff at Texas. And guess what? Unexpected, unplanned. We get into a little bit of realignment talk, which people are always excited about, right? Okay, Stu, we've had, I don't know, almost 10 days of sorting through the Tennessee searches, both AD and head coach. If I told you last Monday that they were going to end up hiring Josh Heupel, your reaction would have been... That something went terribly wrong. I mean, you know, you're... You wrote your candidate story, you know, as soon as the job opened up. I don't believe Josh Heupel's name was in there, right? And no, it was not. Even when they hired UCF's AD, that didn't lead us to all think, oh, he's going to bring Josh Heupel with him. Um, I think we learned that, and, and look, you've been saying it for some time, that this job is such a mess. I don't think anybody's going to want it. And, and I was saying, well, yeah, but it's still... SEC, big money, it's still huge what? fan base. It's still what? Like, it's I still, still think what? it'll be attractive <laughs> to some people. And it turned out the answer was no, it's not attractive to anybody. It can, okay, so there's something to unpack there. It can be attractive to people, meaning like, oh, let me think about it. And then I think the issue was going to come up as, and these are all, you know, individual determinations, certainly. But I think when people looked at it, it was a job that just the uncertainty of well we we're not going to know you can guesstimate all you want you just don't know what the NCA is going to decide from this scandal that cost Jeremy Pruitt and nine guys on the staff their jobs so there was that part there was also a part this came up from at least I know of two people who were involved in one way or another with the search was there's like more than two dozen Tennessee players and some of them are the best players in the program who are now in the portal and that would make it that much harder um some of them are already at Oklahoma yeah three of them are now at Oklahoma um the part about the search stories here's how surprised I was about Josh Heupel uh I don't know, it's probably 12 to 15 hours before the news became official. The, you know, credit to the uh, Tennessee Rivals site, they were out in front of it and had talked about Josh Heupel as being the primary target and this. And a couple hours after that, some sources that I had were saying they are hearing that too. And I remember I kept on going, is it really real? And, you know, I had conversations with multiple people, including one person really connected to Josh Heupel. And... You know, and that was, I guess the difference in what I would say in this is 
Like, I'm not even talking about to report Josh Heupel is expected to be offered the job or anything. It was just like Josh Heupel, just even to say Josh Heupel is the primary focus of the, as emerged as the primary focus of the, of the Vol surge. Because I remember I had that. Then I was like, do I tweet this? Do I not? And I just, there were a couple of people who I feel, you know, pretty strongly uh, about in terms of how plugged in they are. They were like, kind of gun shy because they, I think they couldn't get their minds around. I think, is Danny White really going to hire Josh Heupel who, yes, he's 28 and eight and has a really good offense. But by the same token, you talk to a lot of people in the AAC and you probably talk to a lot of UCF fans and they feel like the program has backslid on his watch each of the last three years. It's also not a stretch to think a year from now, Josh Heupel could have been on the hot seat at UCF with the way things were going. So just the idea that they ended up hiring him, um, I think is a little puzzling, but it probably shouldn't be because of all the stuff we've been saying before about this job is is really challenging. It is a real uphill climb now. And I, I would, you know, you know, sprint it forward now that he's got the job. Um, like, how do you, how do you feel like, if you're a Tennessee fan, you know enough about Josh Heupel, how would you feel about it? I can't imagine they're all that excited about it. I, I don't, you know, I'm a little uncomfortable with, with crapping all over him. Um, mm-hmm. And I want to kind of, I, I spent some time last night kind of looking back at his UCF tenure to date. And so here's the pros and cons, in my opinion. Tennessee's offense has been miserable for as long as I can remember now. Certainly under, throughout the Jeremy Pruitt tenure. I mean, it was just never had an answer at quarterback. And then, you know, they had, at one point under Butch Jones, they had Alvin Kamara and, and unfortunately had him as the backup. And well, the, the guy who was the starter was a really talented back, by the way. Sure. And, and it's and, not like he was nobody. And Josh Dobbs was a decent SEC quarterback, but they weren't tearing it up out there. Um, you know, look, Josh Heupel, everywhere he's been, the one thing you could count on is he's going to have a quarterback who threw for a gazillion yards, whether it was Landry Jones at Oklahoma or Drew Locke at Missouri, and certainly now uh, both Mackenzie Milton and Dylan Gabriel. So that's a reason to be excited if you're a Tennessee fan who suffered through just miserable offenses. But to your point, like it would be unrealistic to think he, I mean, it would be an, it would be an unreasonable standard for to expect him to do, just keep going undefeated, right? Like Scott Frost did and like he did in his first season. So I'm not going to hold that against him, but it is troubling that their record has gotten worse with each year. And this past year, six and four got blown out by BYU in the bowl game. I know at his press conference, he mentioned all the opt-outs they had before the season. And I'm not saying that that's not valid, but everybody had opt-outs. And at the end of the day, he took over. Here's the thing. He took over a program that Scott Frost had. Like He took over Scott Frost's roster. They were clearly the most talented team in that conference. And I'm not, it's hard to go undefeated. So I'm not trying to say like, oh, anybody could have gone 12-0 and with that 2018 team. They couldn't. So he did a great job. But two years later, nobody would say they're still the most talented team in the conference. Cincinnati is. Um, and that tells me, that's, that doesn't give me a lot of confidence that he can go to Tennessee, which is going to be starting from the bottom, and recruit in the SEC at a level necessary to get them to where they eventually want to be, which is back in the upper part of that conference. I mean, if you're Kirby Smart today, are you, you know, 
oh, I don't think Kirby Smart is sitting in his office right now going, oh boy, Tennessee got hypo. We're in trouble. You know, that's that's never a good sign either. Uh, interesting. So this morning, early this morning, I did our colleague Joe Rexroad's radio show in Tennessee. And I don't remember if it was Joe or his co-host had pointed out Josh Heupel's tenure as the OC in Missouri. And I kind of forgot about this because I did hear this years ago um, when it came up. But obviously Drew Locke is a very talented quarterback. He's in the NFL. He's you know was a hyped recruit and, and had prolific career there. In the last year, Heupel was the OC at Missouri. And this is what uh, one of the radio guys had pointed out. I think it was Joe had said, you got to look at the numbers of the teams they played. And so I'm just doing that now in terms of they put up some huge numbers, but it was really backloaded. So I'm going to tell you the, um, again, you could throw this out. This is nitpicking beyond thing, but it is something maybe to keep in mind if things don't go as they seem to go in the AAC. Um, in that year, they put up 72 points in the opener, but it was against Southwest Missouri State. The next week, they played South Carolina and scored 13. The next week, they played Purdue and scored 3. The next week, they played Auburn and scored 14. Then they played at Kentucky and lost 40-34. to Then they played at Georgia and lost 53-28. to This is where the numbers go crazy from here. They put up 68, but it was against Idaho. They put up 52 against UConn. They put up 45 against Florida, but albeit that was the McElwain's last year. Put up 50 against that last Butch Jones team, 50 to 17. 45 on Vandy. 48 on Arkansas. And then they played in the bowl game against Texas in the infamous backpack game. And Texas beat them 33 to 16. And I think the most trouble, I mean, this isn't such an unusual career arc Heupel has taken. I mean, to be the national championship quarterback for Oklahoma, for all the success Oklahoma has had over the last two decades, still the only time they won the, actually won the national championship was with Josh Heupel as their quarterback. So he should by all means be beloved by Oklahoma fans. But then he goes and, and works for Bob Stoops and eventually gets fired because he was the OC for pretty much the worst season of of. Bob Stoops run in 2014 when they got remember that bowl game against Clemson and this was before Clemson really broke out the final score is 40 to 6 I think they punched one in in the last second I mean you were, it was so jarring to watch an Oklahoma team get just destroyed like that and he got fired and Bob Stoops to this day says that's the hardest thing he had to do was fire his star quarterback now OC so five years later six years later he is the head co- head coach at a at a you know at a well known SEC program. It's pretty remarkable, but and he has you know look and credit to him. He rebuilt his career. He went off to Utah State with Matt Wells and then landed at Missouri and put up some big numbers and was able to get the UCF job and did did pretty well at it. I mean, again, I mean the twenty eight and eight is strong. It's just uh, again. I, you know, in retrospect, it's like, I'm not sure, you know, this is probably an unfair question because I think I already know the answer to it. But like, if I said to you, rank these three coaches, if you were the AD, uh, Lance Leipold from Buffalo, Jamie Chadwell from Coastal Carolina, and Josh Heupel from, from UCF, if you're the head coach, how would you have, if you were the AD, if you were Danny White, who would you have targeted and what order would they be? I would have gone Chadwell one, Leipold two, Hypo three, 
that's the thing. Like we don't know for sure. You may have some intel, but no, they may have. They went. At, we know they went after. They at least, um, you know, they at least call or I should say the search firm that they paid one hundred twenty thousand dollars for just to end up with the AD's old coach. You know, does their vetting and sees like who might actually be interested in this job. And it would not be surprising to learn that, for instance, James Franklin didn't want anything to do with it or Luke Fickle. What we don't know is did did Jamie Chadwell actually tell them, sorry, no, no, I'm not interested, or did they never even call? Because that's that's where I would be troubled. I don't know if Jamie Chadwell would be a SEC championship coach at Tennessee, but to your original point about who excites the fan base, I think he would definitely excite the fan base more because of A, his Tennessee ties, and B, coming off this remarkable season he just had at Coastal, whereas Heupel's coming off US UCF's worst season in several years. Will be. Uh, look, never a dull moment. I mean, it wasn't long after that um, where he's just like, all right, we're watching Danny White's press conference, and he's like, why are you guys so negative? You know, it's like... That was a weird comment, um, to say the least. Uh, yeah, it was like, read the room. The, the, I mean, Ub and I did this story on just all the crazy stuff that has gone on in the last decade. Those fans have a reason to be cynical after everything that's well, going so on. Well, so your guy's story was fantastic. It was, what, the 30, 30 weirdest moments? Um, everything from... And now it'll be 31. Yeah, yeah, I was going to ask you, where would you rank... <laughs> Where would you, so it was, and so many of those things were just like, just so Tennessee, um, especially a lot. I mean, I forgot just how many bizarre Derek Dooley things happened. Um, the shower etiquette for one, uh, where would you rank in that list? Just generally speaking, Tennessee paying a search firm $120,000 to end up with a guy who the AD could have just like put in the seat next to him on the plane on the way up. Uh, you know, so on background on this story, so Ubin and I each vote you know ranked and so we tabulated where it came from i think i think my number one choice was actually the that tone deaf press conference from last monday with fulmer and the chancellor and the president and obviously i think his was shiano sunday um and those were bigger you know those were more momentous things uh the aspect of the search to land on him i think i probably would have had that maybe six wow or seven because you know you get into this like they lose to lsu and less miles and it's 13 players on the field in the way they lost that was number seven i feel like yeah that was probably a a real gut punch but i think this kind of feels like it felt very tennessee the comment he made towards the end of his press conference about like you know it was what he that comment was some of the same stuff that kind of it blows back in Butch Jones's face kind of thing. Like there was a Butch Jones thing that was very similar, except Butch Jones was at the end of his tenure, not at the beginning of Danny White's tenure. You know, so... Um, I feel like Danny White came in... I mean, this is all happening so fast. Danny White was introduced last Thursday, and there was a lot of excitement. Like, oh my gosh, we have a real experienced AD now who's had all this success, and this is the first step toward... Getting the, getting the program where it needs to be. And less than a week later, he just like blew all that goodwill. Um, now, I will say, and, and I, I want to turn the page here because it feels like we talk about Tennessee for 20 minutes every week. But the only other thing I would say in Heupel's defense is Danny White would know a lot more about what's going on at UCF than we do, right? He's no doubt. sure he no goes doubt. to practice. And if he felt like the program had truly backslid, I don't think he'd be making this higher. So he must feel pretty strongly that 
six and four doesn't really tell the story of what was going on there. Like you, you referred to, he could be a year away from being on the hot seat. Again, like if Danny White was starting to think that way, he wouldn't be hiring him at Tennessee. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. And honestly, that's probably the strongest statement I think that you know we could have made or they could have made is if he really thought that because he's going to know it way better than anybody else outside would know it even coaches who are in the AAC who maybe see the product on the field and think that Danny White should know that um, on the front end as well as anybody so again this is I mean Danny White's putting his reputation on it because this is this is the biggest hire he will make at, at at his new job and they paid a lot of money they also paid a lot of money to you know three million dollars is not Trump change to get uh, to get Josh Heupel out of there too. So, how much of a gut um, punch will it be for Tennessee fans if UCF turns around and hires Jamie Chadwell, or or, uh, or a, even worse, Hugh Freeze? <laughs> they, you know, yeah. Because um, I think I UCF know, I think can the, get a good coach. That's an attractive job. Oh, no doubt. It's it's the. I mean, it is the best. We should talk about this for a second. It is the best or most attractive power or group of five job in the country. Now. Yeah. So I think they will, whether they get Marcus Freeman, the Notre Dame defensive coordinator, or Dan Lanning from Georgia, or like you said, Jamie Chadwell, or, you know, like there are guys in a lot of ways, I think that job is more is more attractive than the one that Danny White just hired somebody for, just because the expectations, I'm not saying they don't have expectations of winning now, because they certainly do. That fan base is used, is, is, is gotten the taste of it. It's just um, there isn't the NCAA sanctions looming over it, and it's just it has some momentum, whereas this Tennessee job has no momentum. Andy Staples made that very case in the column he published on uh, Wednesday that he's like, yeah, okay, Josh Heupel, let him go deal with that mess at Tennessee. If you're UCF, we'll just hire a really good coach who can come into um, this this high-level Group of five program that is position, you know, still they they hope there that they're positioning themselves for the next round of realignment to get called up to the big leagues, if you will. And um, they think, okay, Mister Realignment guy, you teased it. Is that a scenario that you envision happening in the not too distant future? You and I, I remember when we were at Fox and uh, and remember that summer, summer of twenty sixteen, when the Big Twelve gave us like three months of free content where, <laughs> when they were like j- just throwing it up like we might expand and David Bourne the Oklahoma president were like we're psychologically disadvantaged and they trotted all those candidates in I remember clearly that you and I both advocated for UCF and this was when they were coming off a winless season like we both realized at the time that the potential for that job is tremendous and if you can get that program going in the you know one of the best recruiting states in the country and a big market like there's a lot to like there so if this were 2015 i would say yeah absolutely like the big 12 needs to add two teams and and they should be ucf and cincinnati i don't know that anybody though is looking to expand anytime soon um 
I think it's more likely in the next go around that they might consolidate a little bit or they might like to me, and this is, we could go on a whole long tangent of this, the single, you know, for all, all the talk about the PAC 12 and what can Larry Scott do and, or what can his successor do? The best thing the big 12 and PAC 12 could do is merge because they're both going to fall so far behind the big 10 and the sec. And it's just, that's just the reality of it. Like those two conferences are moving far ahead of the so others. How it- so how would that work though with uh, like conference of champions as it likes to be known has a lot of other sports yes. not just college football so how would they work logistically would they just not play the other teams in their league if they're too far travel partners i don't know that it would have to be uh that all at that point 22 teams would all play each other all the time i'm talking in t- uh, talking about it solely as a tv package you know so there's some kind of term that that people much smarter than me and and you would use for this. And I'm trying to think what it is, which is like, it's basically a loose association. You're not really in the same conference, but you're... You would be in You're basically packaged. What? So the whole goal here would be, in in my opinion, like, okay, I wrote a story about this last summer about Power 5 TV contracts. The fact that they're all negotiated individually hurts all of them collectively. The reason the NFL... Can just make Does it hurt absolute... the SEC? The SEC is doing fine, but imagine if imagine if all of Power Five college football was one TV contract, and it only came up for bid like every ten years or whatever. Like they would get so much more money than they do in the current arrangement. Where if you're ESPN and you strike out on the Big Ten, okay, well I still have the SEC and the ACC. You know what I mean? Like. The, the more consolidated it is, the more leverage you have because there's fewer chances for the networks to, to get it. Like it, the NFL, it's like basically Fox's entire business is dependent on them getting the NFL contract. But why would, why, would, why would Greg Sankey want to partner with the Yukons of the world or the Mountain West? Well, no, 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 not Group of Five. It would be, it would okay, be so basically why would a new partner, age version Why would you of, want to partner with the Pac-12? Pac-12 doesn't have the same eyeballs. It doesn't have the same. If he, same only if he thought interest. only. I don't think it's going to happen. Just to be clear, but only if they thought that all of the schools, like Alabama, if 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 the the value of the contract would be so much higher as a whole, that I Alabama be, would still be, get more. But anyway, let's go back. Rude, this is a fe- pie not in the to sky sound thing. rude, but I think I think you really stepped in it with this because. Well, with, I, I have t- let me I, just finish TV my point because will all tell you that they would be better off doing it that way. They may, but the idea that all of a sudden you go into a partnership with all these people and then you have less control and less um, management of the situation because now it has a lot of tentacles that are all tied together. I think it becomes more unwieldy. Well, wieldy. let's focus just on the big. It's too unwieldy to talk about the whole sixty-five. Let's talk about the big. Well, you you, th- you just basically told Greg Sankey, "Hey, buckle up. You're on board with you're on board with Oregon State and Arizona, and some other entities that you probably don't want to be in. You know, be partners with. And that's why they they probably won't do it. But and from strictly financial, like all of the TV media consultants will tell you would say. They are leaving money on the tape. Like the NFL makes whatever, exponentially more money than college football from TV. It's not that the NFL is that much more popular than college football. It's that the NFL 
has all the leverage because they but it they is are more the that much more popular. The seller. ratings numbers are way different. Not the, to the than, extent. Yes, they are, but not to the extent. Like the college, if you were doing it solely based on like popularity of the sport, the gap between there would still be a big gap between the NFL and college football, but it wouldn't be as big as it is now. College football is still undervalued on the TV market, even the SEC and Big Ten, because the there's SEC, multi- Do we need to do, do? I need to call in an econ professor here? When there's only one seller that controls all of the inventory, they have a lot more leverage than when there are five separate sellers who have divvied up the inventory. It, Okay, so, and I, I don't know the exact specifics. Of this. I'm not sure anybody we could talk to, and the econ professor definitely wouldn't know the, the exact specifics of this, but if you're Greg Sankey and you're the SEC and you're looking for a TV partner, it's entirely possible they could have found some kind of more, more lucrative package from some other entity than what ESPN gave them, but does that serve their interest the way they best want it to serve? I don't think it strictly in their case came down to just money. I think that's right. That's I all think I'm that saying. They wanted that's all I'm saying. And this, the reason they're moving from CBS to ESPN is they want everything under one roof. They've talked about that. Um, let's go back to the big 12 pack 12 thing. This started with us talking okay. about UCF. So the big 10, the sec in terms of, of, ratings in terms of fan interest in terms of football product just keep moving further and further away from the other three in the article i published about the future of power five tv contracts last summer um i kind of partnered with navigate research who works with a lot of the conferences and and is is a consultant for a lot of them and specializes in this and had them project out tv revenue for each of the five conferences over the next decade so right now, the gap is Big Ten schools are getting $51 million a year, SEC $44.6 million a year, and then Big 12, 38.8, Pac-12, 31.3, ACC, 29.5. It's not that big. It's a gap. It's not that big a gap. By 2029, though, the Big Ten and the SEC, and their projections, would be sitting at 80, 89 and $82 million per school, whereas the Pac-12 would be at $60 million per school. So how do you, there's a lot of things there that are completely out of the Pac-12's control. At the end of the day, they don't have Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State type fan bases. They don't have, they just don't get the eyeballs and there's nothing a new commissioner can do about that. And the Big 12 only has two schools that get those kind of eyeballs, Oklahoma and Texas. I don't think it's a stretch to say that most of their TV value is with those two programs. So what if they teamed up just to sell their their football TV package together? So that, hey, if you want Oklahoma, Texas, USC, Oregon, the only way to do it is to buy this package where you get the two of them together. I think that's the only way they close the gap considerably. That just doesn't mean that they all, that, that Oklahoma State has to play uh, Oregon State in volleyball. Like You could keep that stuff mostly separate, um, but you would agree to play X number of football games a year between the two. Where there's not where travel is not really you know as big a deal. That's my proposal. Their TV contracts come up pretty soon and only a year apart. It's doable. It just is going to require some creativity. Should I uh, put you on the phone with my bosses, my TV bosses? Well, they would not be happy about that, to say the least. <laughs> no, I don't think they would. It will cost and them more money in the long run <laughs> if they do that. And you're already persona non grata with a few of them, so I don't know if this is going to help you. I don't think Leinert has that much control over the TV contract. (laughs) No. no. (laughs) 
<laughs> he doesn't dislike you a lot. Okay. It's, no, it's the other people. Well, all right. The Still, other people. Go... You're just gonna leave it hanging out there like that. Not Rob Stone. Not Dave Wanstead. They like you. Okay. Um, Good. So why don't, why don't we go on to the mailbag? As always, you can send your questions to the Audible Pod at Gmail dot com our first question is from your old stomping ground i believe Stu greg selig in brooklyn new york ah yes brooklyn there you go howdy gentlemen been following the coverage of the sarkeesian hire at texas pretty closely since it happened and i have to say i'm going against my better instincts and drinking the big burnt orange kool-aid again but all the sugar comes from how good this staff is bruce says the Stradamus, coach Stradamus, thank you is this a real thing or just more empty calories for the faithful? This is a good question, Greg. Stu, how much are you buying in Sark? Um, I think that, what, however, you know, I wasn't necessarily 100% bought in on Sark. I thought, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting hire for Texas. But to his point, he has assembled a great, great staff. Um, the kind of, you know, the kind of staff that Saban assembles, frankly. And a couple of the guys came from there. But which, which of the guys that he's gotten surprised you the most like or, or made you feel like wow that was a big get uh, a couple of them so honestly um i think getting jeff banks who he was close to to leave alabama he's arguably the best special teams coordinator in the country and he has recruited texas really well uh from his time at texas and i mean even before that and certainly at alabama uh, i thought that was a big one and then i thought especially the two defensive the two the coordinator and the co-coordinator Pete Kwiatkowski, who came from Washington, and, you know, I also thought Jeff Choate, who was the head coach of Montana State, who worked with him at Washington, I think those guys were really good additions. Now, being a defense coordinator in the the Big 12 is is a little different than being a big defense coordinator in the the Pac-12, but I think those guys will help a lot, and I think it also helps that Choate has been a a head coach. Kyle Flood, who did a good job as the old line coach at Alabama, who Sark with brought with him i believe from from the falcons and then coached with him obviously at alabama kyle flood's been a head coach in at rutgers so i think that helps to have a little more um experience and seasoning around that so those are the ones for me for you what caught your eye yeah definitely Pete kwiatkowski uh, the washington fans are just beside themselves they they did not see that coming he's been there he had been there since chris peterson's first season and um, obviously when Jimmy Lake was moved up to head coach, you know, it was, there was never any question he would be the DC. So, I mean, Christian Capel has been writing all this stuff about it and how it affects Washington and, and talk to him. And he made it clear that like he gets overtures all the time and he never truly considers them, but he couldn't say no to, to Sark and to Texas. So now I still think at the end of the day, like. Getting your staff right is is hugely important, no question. And so they should be feeling really good about themselves. I still think at the end of the day, the biggest key for Sark will just be, can he get, can the whole leadership of that school just be aligned and in supportive of him? I feel like Charlie Strong never got a fair shake there. They started out supporting Tom Herman within a couple of years, all soured on him. You know, will he have like the actual genuine support of everybody boosters president ad um that will be the biggest key to his success yeah i mean look i don't think anyone would call i mean tom Herman was fired after four years and it wasn't shocking that it got to there you know in year four but at the same time 
you know, he was 32 and 18 year two. They had a top 10 season and it had momentum and then it just completely imploded. Um, I think the challenge is going to be this is not Tennessee in terms of this program. There's, I'll have a story, you know, not down the road a little bit more about this, but there are some pieces to work with here. And there is, it's not like Lincoln Riley's done a really good job at Oklahoma. But the Big 12 is 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 pretty wide open at this point. I mean, there's a bunch of pretty good teams in it. Iowa there's State. There's only one awful team. What? Yeah, Iowa State is good. I feel like there's teams that are that are kind of on the rise in there. Um, but you have a chance to to really. There's not. It's not like you got Alabama to get through. It's not like you got Georgia and LSU and Florida and you know Texas A and M. I mean, they got to recruit against them because they're there, but. You know, you don't have to get by them. It's not like the it's a murderer's row in this. In the, you know, every week you're going to face a bunch of first round picks on the other team. You know, there's that's not the way the Big Twelve is set up. So, um, I have, I mean, you know, it's true. We, you know, you don't always have much of a feel for how some of these things are going to go. You think you do. I I'm with you. I like the staff he put together, and as Greg said. Um, I just, you know, I really don't know. I mean, Sark did a, did actually a pretty good job at Washington because they were awful before he got there, and then he got them to be pretty good. And then at USC, it was a debacle. So now he's he's clearly grown and evolved from his time, and certainly the last couple of years at Alabama went very well. Um, I don't know. I mean, I feel better about said, the hire today than I did when it was announced. The the fact that just the fact that he was able to convince a lot of those guys to come tells me they have respect for him. They have respect for Texas, and it's just it's just a good sign. Ready to talk some yeah, Pac-12? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, and I think that. I mean, look, I get why you know Banks's family is in Texas. I could see why there would be the appeal to go back, and they are pretty close to get to get you know Pete to leave Seattle and Washington. Um, I think that was a significant move to get Jeff Choate to leave a head coaching job where he's got a lot of connections with those players and ultimately go, I think was probably not easy. I mean, honestly, to get Kyle Flood, you know, when he had the best offensive line in college football last year, um, you know, he, for all we know, he may have had just as good a chance of getting another head coaching job staying at Alabama than he did to go with Sark. So I think that does speak well. Um, I did want to ask you this, though. So I'm going to try to put you on the spot here. So five years from now, has Sark won a Big 12 title? Five years from now? I'm going to, I'm going to say yeah. yes. I don't think the Oklahoma... I mean, as great as Oklahoma has been, and they ha- and I think they're only going to get better. I think they are they are primed for a national championship type run this season. They Oklahoma and Texas game when they played each other the last three years or so. First of all, Texas won the uh, the first the year that they met twice. They they won the first one. This one this year went to double overtime. Like they haven't been that far apart. I just think that Tom Herman could never quite. It was it was the other games, right? Like they played well in that game, and then they would lay an egg against uh, Texas Tech or somebody. Um, you know, if they can get more consistent, like I don't think it's I don't think there's this huge gap between Oklahoma and Texas. Yeah, I agree with everything you just said. All right, so a lot's gone on in the Pac-12 since we last talked, uh, mainly that the commissioner got fired. Um, 
I like these questions. There, we'll just combine them here. Um, first of all, Jeff Trailer, very simple question: What later, what letter grade would you give? Would you guys give Larry Scott's tenure with the Pac-12? And then Brian asks: In the world of Power Five conference commissioners, where does the Pac-12 commissioner fit in? Is this position thought of by possible candidates as a Power Five conference or barely above a Group of Five conference? I am going to give Larry Scott a D plus. Ouch. What were you going to give him? I give him a C. Really? Yeah. Man, I would have loved to have had you in, in uh, high school, <laughs> too. I wouldn't have probably had to go to junior college. Well, he said Larry Scott's tenure. The beginning of his tenure was really good. He. That's why I gave him the D plus and not the D. <laughs> oh, jeez. And, and not the F. And honestly, that's why I didn't give him the F. I think that if you had asked this question in 2013-ish, you would have said an A. The rest of it didn't go so well, so I downgraded it to a C. And you're saying you're considering it a long time from 2013. Well, but it kind of... Look, at the end of the day, you can't give a good grade to somebody who the entire conference turned against by the end. The coaches, the ADs, and certainly the fans wanted nothing to do with him by the end. You could say for that reason alone to give him an F, right? Like, that's the definition of a failure. Um, But there are also, and I've said this before, like there are some things that he gets blamed for that he has no control. He has no control over the fact that USC can't get out of its own way and field a great football program. If USC was having a Pete Carroll run right now, um, the Pac-12 as a whole would be... He probably gets a C, yeah. Yeah. And, and yet, okay, so you're admitting he gets a better grade if USC had their no, football team No, I'm together. saying there are some circumstances that would have helped. Here's the thing with that, though. Yes, I agree. It is not his fault. He had no response. He had, he had, it was not his fault that USC has been spinning its wheels pretty much for the last eight years, save for the Sam Darnold year. But when you know that your flagship program is reeling, what can you do as a leader, as the guy who runs the conference, to help mitigate that in some other ways? And I just felt like the reason why I would give Larry Scott a D plus and in the D's is because I feel like his biggest issue was he never kept the main thing the main thing. And he, it seemed like whether he intentionally did this or not, he was always trying to focus on things that would be different from everybody as opposed to better. And I felt like ultimately, you know, that stopped serving the interest of a lot of student athletes. And since I'm not saying that, that they were mistreated because, look, there was a lot of emphasis, emphases that they that I think they had that were were very you know, well, uh, well-intentioned, but I think there was a lot of other stuff where you just stop serving your fans. And at the end of the day, to me, I feel like the other conference commissioners are much more in tune with that than the PAC 12 was. And that doesn't even get into a lot of the tone deaf stuff that we saw that was embarrassing for the league and how it ran, you know, it's just yeah. like some of those other things. I mean, like, I don't know how you give him, see knowing some of the some of the gaffes that happened that they just kind of looked the other way on or shrugged their shoulder about Larry was much more concerned with the marketing of the conference than the actual product and 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 right up until the end and so I think the two biggest 
downfalls of his tenure were that, and the and the really the 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 big whiff that hovers over everything is the Pac-12 networks, and it seemed like a great idea at the time, but it just at the end of the day, not not you know you've seen since then the SEC and ACC have started networks and basically handed over to ESPN to and to to run them, and ESPN has a lot of experience at this stuff has gotten them on gotten them onto cable networks and gotten them into homes you could say like obviously there's a lot more demand for the sec football in particular than the pac-12 and i get that but there's no reason why the acc network should be in 70 million homes and the pac-12 network in like 17 million homes so the next commissioner to the to the question to the to brian's question i i still yes i it's definitely viewed as a power five conference i mean yeah that's it's getting a little um over dramatic to say like it's a group of five conference i mean we just i just read off the the difference in the money between the power five leagues the drop down from what the pac-12 makes which is still a considerable amount of money to the aac which i believe like their their tv contract a pac-12 school individually makes about as much as the entire aac makes in tv money so it's definitely a power five job and let's not forget like we're not that far removed from that great Oregon run in the Chip Kelly, early Helfrich era. We're not that far removed from USC being more what you think of USC as being. And certainly like, you know, as much as we make fun of the Conference of Champions nickname, they are that in the other sports. So um, I think maybe if it were, um, you know, if the TV contract wasn't coming up soon, that probably would scare off some people because they'd feel like I'm expected to fix things and there's no real way to do it but you're going to have an opportunity almost as soon as you start to start negotiating for the next deal and that's gonna that's gonna you know close the gap considerably they've been waiting on this for a long time and that person will have a tough decision to make about what to do with the network but there there are ways that they can there's some things like i said they have no control the next commissioner has no control over what usc does who they hire as their next coach if they're going to hire a new coach but they have control over how can we get better exposure for this conference. Because right now, like the year two years ago where Utah had a chance, went into the conference championship game with a chance to make the playoff, I felt like nobody east of the Rockies even knew who played for them. Because all their games were on at 10.30 at night on the Pac-12 network. Um, You know, you gotta do something about that. All right, so let's go on to Tim B in St. Petersburg, Florida. Stuenberg, Shane Beamer has been outspoken in his preference to hire assistants who share his view of the University of South Carolina as a destination as opposed to just another stop for a mercenary coach. Considering this, what do you think is the optimal strategy or combination of strategies for filling out a staff? A, hiring quote-unquote hungry guys with something to prove. B, hiring to fit a philosophy, either schematic or administrative. C, hiring the best resume available. D, hiring alumni and local local legends. I think that the least important of those is D. Like, it's nice to mix in a, a local, le- you know, a, a, you know, the one um, former player who's very well revered and, and has experience. But, like, that's not how you build out your staff, obviously. Um, hiring to fit a philosophy is probably the most important because they got to be on the same page as you. Like if you hire a great example of that, is, of that backfiring was LSU was, you know, Ogeron hiring Polini, which seemed to me like 
more of hiring the, the biggest name, then you guys are on the same page schematically. Um, hiring the best resume. That actually was, but that actually was where he thought he was going. Because remember, Bo Pelini was a, a protege of Pete Carroll's, who, by the way, Ed Ogeron was a protege right. of. That was what he thought he was getting scheme wise. Was that was what that was the appeal? I don't think he cared about the, like the name. I mean, Joe Brady wasn't a name. Well, in that case, it just totally one. backfired. But yeah, it backfired. Know. I just think it backfired for a different. But there have been plenty that. of cases where a coach hired the maybe didn't do his research and hired an OC or a DC on reputation, and then found out pretty quickly. Like, actually, I don't, I don't like what this guy does at all. Um, I don't know. What do you think about the hiring hungry guys with something to prove? Well, hungry guys with something to prove fits into the category of you hungry guys typically are guys you would associate as really good recruiters because they're going to hustle. Um, and I think, you know, like, honestly, I think you need a mix of all these things on this on your staff. You probably need three guys or four guys who are going to go out there and grind as recruiters. I think when you're ta- talking about a philosophy, you're basically talking about your coordinators. I'm not sure now if if the you know, once you get into this i mean i don't know how much and i know this because i i can think of one specific uh assistant coach i know who's like trying to get on in a couple of places and he brings something um schematically but he's not going to be a, a play caller he's not going to be a coordinator so i think that has that is waning value meaning it's it depends on um you know the time and where like the head coach what he wants from that because i don't think you want the too many cooks in the kitchen kind of thing so i think that there's elements of that and um you know look i look at jed fish's staff at arizona i feel like he has done a very good job at least of turning the narrative in a hurry about there was a lot of locally a lot of skepticism when they hired him and not Brent Brennan from San Jose State. And then I think people started to see the hires he got, not just that he did hire two local legends and they were both Hall of Fame players, but they were guys with credentials as, you know, had been NFL assistants at high levels. And then he gets Don Brown, who has a huge resume. And I think that is also a philosophical thing, but then you got to hire, you know, he hired probably San Jose State, arguably one of the best recruiters in group of five from the West Coast on that staff. So I think it's, it's ideally you end up with a mix of these guys as opposed to, you know, a bunch of guys who maybe are the same thing. Bruce, why don't we close out with a very familiar name, but one who, frankly, I don't think I've picked a question from in, in quite some time, our friend Jason Garluski in Columbia, South Carolina, but who is not a South Carolina fan. He is a Florida fan. Guys, this year was great because Kyle Trask threw a ton of touchdowns and they killed Georgia, but the LSU loss was embarrassing. The ball game was gross. As you've noted, Dan Mullen had a rough December, but his track record with quarterbacks is strong. What should fans expect from Emory Jones in 2021 and beyond? I would expect Emory Jones or Anthony Richardson or, or some combination of both will you know, play very well because – I, you know, I don't remember a time when Dan Mullen has had a really bad quarterback. You know, I'm not saying he's had, it's always a great quarterback and a number a guy who's going to put up numbers like Kyle Trask. But I do think, look, Kyle Trask is not the most mobile quarterback and he got a little bit of something in the, in the run game. I think you'll get a lot more of a, of a running quarterback with Emory Jones and Richardson. Um, 
I think some of the question is going to be they got to get better on defense. I, you know, the offense to me, the bowl game notwithstanding, um, I don't think is the biggest concern. Like, like I could see Florida as a nine-win team. The question is, are they going to get a lot better up front to be more than that? Because quite honestly, between the Kyles, Kyle Trask, and Kyle Pitts, and they did have a good group of receivers. I mean, they're losing some good players. Kadarius Toney is, is a really dynamic weapon for them. It's not to say that that they don't. I mean, Demarcus Bowman comes in. He was a former five-star recruit who left Clemson to go there. I mean, there's big expectations. Lorenzo Lingard was, I think, a former five-star running back who transferred out of Miami. I mean, these are pretty dynamic weapons. Um, you know, it's just... Uh, you know, I, I think they'll be really good on offense, and I, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say, hey, Emory Jones would be a dark horse Heisman pick. But, it, you know, every year I feel like they have a pretty good to really good quarterback. I'm not worried about their offense. I mean, I don't think it'll be what it was this year. Um, I don't, but I'm not worried about it. They need to get a lot better on defense. It was a, and, and that was something that Florida had been, Florida, you, you could count on having a very good defense every year going back to at least. Uh, I mean, maybe even all the way back to to Muschamp. Like you always, the, the run of cornerbacks they had, um, but they were terrible on defense this year. And obviously, a lot of criticism toward Todd Grantham. So we'll see if that was a one-off thing. And guys with more experience, they get better this year. But I'm excited to see what he does with Emory Jones. I think it'll be he's more, frankly, more like the quarterbacks he's had success with in the past than Kyle Trask was. It was really a credit to Mullen that he. I don't, I don't want to say he reinvented his offense, but it was definitely a different offense than you'd seen him run in the past that took advantage of um, Trask and, and all those great receivers and certainly Kyle Pitts. All right, guys. This was a good episode, Bruce. I don't want to pat ourselves on the back prematurely, but I didn't expect us to go into realignment. That That's podcast gold right there. Um, and, and good questions. As always, send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.